2: The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Weiner. Today we'll talk about how the progressives in the House will fight Trump. Joan Walsh will report on the Congressional Progressive Caucus and its co-chair Pramila Jayapal. And we'll also talk about politics after the shutdown with Harold Meyerson and what happens if Trump tries to shut down the government again. But first, Trump's wall and the walls of the future Donald Trump, of course, lost the fight to get $6 billion from Congress to build his wall 30 feet high and 2,000 miles long. Nancy Pelosi, who won that battle, said the wall was, quote, immoral. But this was a disagreement about symbolism, not policy. We were fighting about the wrong thing. That's what Atusa Araxia Abrahamian says. She's a senior editor at The Nation. Her writing has appeared in The New York Times, The London Review of Books. Lamond and other publications. And she's author of the book, The Cosmopolites, The Coming of the Global Citizen. Atusa, welcome back.
3: Thanks for having me, John.
2: Well, what do you mean we were fighting about the wrong thing? Wasn't it right to oppose Trump's wall?
3: Yeah, so so here's what's going on. Um, Nobody is opposed to the southern border. Nobody is opposed to various types of border security, uh, be they overtly violent or less overtly violent. Trump wants a wall. He wants it to be big and beautiful and visible and imposing. The Democrats are more in favor of something that is less imposing but smarter. The Democrats want something that's much more invasive than uh, a big wall. They want something that can sort of get into your head and get into your record and record you everywhere. Um, And so the argument here is really about aesthetics. It's about... Are we going to build something that offends liberals or are we going to build something that does not offend liberals? Um, I just I don't think that there's such a fundamental disagreement over what's going on at the border between Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump. It's really just a matter of what it looks like.
2: The advocates of this other kind of wall call it a smart wall. You say that kind of border won't be as easy to spot as the kind of wall that Trump is proposing but it will be taking away our freedom. What, what does that mean?
3: Yeah, so w- imagine uh, you always have, w- when we walk around uh, in New York City or in London or, or basically any big city or airport or border zone, there are hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of cameras uh, tracking our every move. At present, these cameras sometimes will connect the dots and know that, you know, this face is my face or these feet are my feet or this, cell phone pinging is my cell phone pinging, but these technologies are getting much, much, much more sophisticated every day. My concern is that eventually this technology is combined with the vast troves of personal information that tech companies are collecting from us every day and sharing with the government. The result of this is going to end up with every single person having their own personal border drawn around them at all times. So it doesn't matter if you're crossing a border and you're talking to a border guard and you're being picked up by 20 cameras there, that type of surveillance, that invasion of your privacy, and that breach of your civil liberties will be happening every day, everywhere, as a matter of course. And so talking about the border, the border wall, what happens at the border won't really make as much sense as talking about, well, what are the borders around us and what are they doing to us and who's, who's collecting that information. So the border, in other words, is is going to be around people, not only around countries.
2: And tell us a little bit more about the technologies that you are concerned about here.
3: So I'm sure you've read about China's social credit system. Um, if you haven't read about China's social credit system, maybe you've seen Black Mirror, the Charlie Brooker series. They're very dystopian and futuristic. The idea there being that all of your that your legal your legal identity, your name, your address, your basic biometrics, uh, maybe your social security number, are linked also to your behavior, uh, both online and in the world, are linked to your consumer habits, are linked to your credit scores. Basically all of the little breadcrumbs you leave around you every day just by being alive and and you know transacting in the modern world, all of these things would get linked up. And so in some and again this sounds you creepy and hyperbolic, but, but, but at some point it's going to be the case that there's going to be some kind of database that connects your fingerprint to your Twitter handle, to your credit score, to, you know, your mortgage information, maybe the name of your pets, if you've registered your pets, have you vaccinated your children? All of this is going, all of these data points are going to be talking to each other. And those could very conceivably form the basis for exclusion uh, from countries, from services, from schools, from benefits, and that too would create a border around you. And so that's why I'm so worried that the real borders that we should be fighting over are the digital ones that we can't see, not the ones that are made of bricks that Trump wants to put between the Mexican and U.S. border.
2: I like your image of the trail of breadcrumbs that you leave behind. Especially on social media, you're saying your tweets, your Facebook posts, your Facebook likes could end up limiting your movements. Are there any suggestions that this is actually happening now?
3: Right now, your Facebook likes, I think, are collected for uh, things like political targeting campaigns. Uh, That was a big issue in the 2016 elections people can create lists of uh, potential voters and kind of target them based on their activity on on the internet is it limiting our movement well anecdotally yes since 2017 well and likely longer the US government has been keeping tabs on the social media profiles of immigrants the customs and borders agents at both the Canadian border and um, at the Mexican border and also abroad have been asking people to share their social media handles. They've been searching people's phones, people's devices. And so, yeah, there there is anecdotal evidence that, you know, they've been looking at information saying, you know, you're sketchy, don't come in. And granted, in some cases, I'm sure this could theoretically prevent some pretty sketchy people from from moving around. But in the vast majority of cases, it's invasive, it's unnecessary. And, you know, a lot of people have even said it's unconstitutional.
2: And let's talk about who is fighting against this, who is sounding the alarm against this kind of digital tracking.
3: Uh, The usual suspects uh, are sounding the alarm. You know, the ACLU is not a big fan, as you could probably imagine. Uh, The Electronic Frontier Foundation is also not too fond of this. I could only imagine that libertarians would hate this too, you know, this isn't just a lefty issue, this is something that everybody who cares about about their privacy should be concerned about. But I'd like to take this conversation further and, and start thinking of these digital barriers and these digital shadows that we create as a type of border, because increasingly that's what, that's exactly how they are going to act. For a lot of immigrants, the border isn't just at the border. The border is, you know, in their everyday life as well. And uh, one of Trump's new rules, put forth by the Department of Homeland Security and USCIS, is to put limits on who can apply for citizenship and permanent residence based on what government services you've used. So there's always been a rule that if you are an immigrant to this country and you are, you know, you really rely on the government to support you entirely that could make it harder for you to apply for a green card or citizenship. Uh, The Trump administration is trying to vastly expand what it means to be a public charge so that, uh, you know, receiving health insurance from the state, for example, could prevent you in the future from applying for residence or citizenship uh, legally. And so when you think of this as a border, too, you get sick, you're in a hospital bed, you're getting Medicaid or Medicare, And then you can't apply for citizenship. Well, the border was actually in your hospital bed. The border is in your home. This is really invasive, I think. And it's happening already.
2: Explain a little bit more to those who aren't familiar with the Chinese experiment with social credit scoring. How exactly does that work? If we did it here, how would it work? In
3: China, the social credit scoring, uh, and I'm not in, I don't, Speak the language. I've never actually been to China, so please per- forgive my broad generalizations there, based on things I've read um, on the internet. I hope no one's watching me. Um, uh, the, in China, uh, the creation of a social credit score re- relies largely on the uh, cooperation and, and you might even say, the complicity of private companies um, like WeChat and AliPay, and uh, these are companies that have microblay, have sort of a Twitter-type platform, but they also allow you to pay for things through your phone. They are also looking into um, giving out loans. So this is kind of an all-service digital identity product. And uh, how it works is that you get assigned scores based on your behavior. Your score can be improved or worsened by the things you do out in the world if you default on a loan, for example. And all of this gets pulled together and turned into a like a grade And then other services still will limit, you know, what kind of train ticket you can buy or what kind of loan you can apply for to people with a score above a certain threshold. It's kind of like credit scoring where, you know, sometimes you'll see an ad for an apartment that you want to rent and it says you only can apply if you have a credit score of above 700 or or what have you. It's kind of like that, but in every part of life.
2: Of course, there are defenders of these kind of digital shortcuts. For example, the Global Entry Program of American uh, Customs. I'm in the Global Entry Program. I have a special card. It enables me to skip the line when I'm returning to the United States. It's a great thing when you're tired, you've been flying all night, not to have to stand in line anymore.
3: I know. I'm going to confess that now um, I'm going to probably apply for that, too, because there's nothing worse. standing in a really long line after a long flight. Oh no, that's not true. There's a lot of things worse, but it's a pain (laughs) in the butt. It's a really big pain in the butt, especially if you're not a US citizen. But here's the thing, you you have the illusion when you sail through the gates and you don't have to wait in line with the proles that the border isn't there for you, that you're not actually in the same boat as everybody else. You are, you've just given your information ahead of time, probably more information than the people in line are giving over. Uh, you've probably paid a fee, and you've probably proved that you're from the right place, and that you, you know, you can aff- afford to pay for these things, in order to be expedited. Uh, so the border's not gone. You're just you're just passing through it a little bit more easily, um, and and in exchange, what you live with is that the people who enforce the border just know a whole lot of, more about you than they did before.
2: For example, you have to give them your fingerprints, which. Probably you have not given the government your fingerprints unless you've been arrested in some kind of protest movement.
3: Or unless you were born literally anywhere else. I'm Canadian. I give my fingerprints every time I go to the airport. See, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying, John. The border that's been there for the rest of us uh, is now there for you. Thank you, Global Entry.
2: So if we stop thinking of borders as lines on the ground that are protected by walls or fences... How should we think of them?
3: I think we need to start thinking of borders as uh, things that aren't just around countries, but also around people, um, as things that are not visible but invisible, uh, not physical but digital. And also the borders can overlap. We can think of them as concentric circles, overlapping circles. And so the borders of the future are wherever we draw them. Let's not forget that borders from the beginning, are artificial lines. And there's nothing preventing us from drawing new ones.
2: Atusa Araxia Abrahamian wrote about Trump's wall and the walls of the future for the New York Times Sunday Opinion section. Her piece there is called The Real Wall Isn't at the Border, It's Everywhere, and We're Fighting the Wrong One. Atusa, thanks so much for talking with us today. Great to have you back on the show.
3: Thanks again. Always a pleasure.
2: time to talk about the progressive caucus in the house for that we turn to Joan Walsh she's the nation's national affairs correspondent and a political analyst at CNN Joan welcome back
4: thanks John I'm happy to be with you
2: well the progressive caucus in the house now includes 40% of all the democrats there and a remarkable number of popular high-profile left-leaning first-termers who are women of course, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and also Minnesota's Ilhan Omar, Michigan's Rashida Tlaib, Massachusetts' Ayana Presley, California's Katie Porter, some of our favorite people. The co chair is Pramila Jayapal. Of course, the Democrats now are going to put together a progressive agenda that will show voters what Democratic victories in 2020 could mean. Of course, one of the biggest issues for the Progressive Caucus is a Green New Deal. And for the first time, the House now has set up a select committee on climate crisis. How did that happen? What exactly does it mean?
4: totally clear what it means yet Uh, there was a a select committee uh, kind of sorta on climate crisis back when Pelosi was uh, speaker the last time and it did it you know held hearings around the country it can develop legislation at first there was some feeling on the part of activists and the new Congress Congress members that it should have sole jurisdiction for writing climate change legislation and also there were some people who felt like it really was supposed to be hammering out the the components of Green New Deal legislation. And Jayapal wound up coming down on the other side of that one. She made, I think, a, a good case to me and a good case that a lot of the activists went along with, which was we've now got progressives um, at the helm of major Committees like Natural Resources, we've got lots of uh, majority of progressives on the Energy and Commerce Committee. These other committees with jurisdiction can do good things too, and they can and they should come up with legislation. And and folks, who it's not a good way to make allies to tell someone like Raúl Grijalva, who now runs Natural Resources, who's a strong progressive stalwart, cares about the environment, that he has to take his hands off climate change legislation. That's not that's not a good way to make friends. With your fellow progressives, and I think everyone wound up agreeing with Jayapal and Pelosi on that. There's still some concerns that the Select Committee doesn't have subpoena power, for instance, like a like a real committee, and that they they can't just get polluters in front of them or or people from Trump agencies that they want to question. That they still have to rely on the goodwill of said people, and so there 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 was some grumbling, but. I think people have fallen more or less in line and, you know, we'll still use activism to make sure that it's strong and that it has a substantive agenda, but the initial cracks wound up healing pretty quickly.
2: And the other really big one, of course, is Medicare for all. I got an email yesterday from progressive Democrats of America that said what is going to be in Pramila Jayapal's bills, the first I'd seen with details, they the email said the legislation would guarantee all medically necessary care, including inpatient, outpatient, surgery, hospitalization, emergency, mental, dental, vision, hearing, medical devices, tests, supplies, pharmaceuticals, therapy, rehabilitation, preventive care, all with no out-of-pocket costs, no copays, no deductibles, no fees. What can you say except wow? And certainly the Republicans will go crazy over the cost to taxpayers. What can you tell us about the process behind Pramila Jayapal's Medicare for All bill?
4: Well, she, you know she formed a Medicare for All caucus within within her caucus. Uh, and she consulted with other members closely. She talked to members who had not signed on to uh, the the bill in the House in the last Congress, and got, you know, some of their feedback about why. She gave me the example of of Congressman Joe Kennedy, uh, who she hopes she can get aboard by sitting down and listening to him. She also had a a you know, a, a roundtable with about nine unions and uh, from folks from DSA. and uh, I would say a wide spectrum of the left, of, of the liberal left, let's say, to meet about this and sort of develop, I don't, I, I can't say consensus yet, because I haven't fully heard that, but she, she really wanted to develop a meaty bill where other bills in the past have been a little bit less substantive and have provided less of a roadmap. So, as you said, John, yes, Republicans are going to jump uh, all over it, but... Uh, you'll also see some Democrats jump on it. I mean, Michael Bloomberg on Tuesday came out strongly against it, said it would, quote, bankrupt us. The unfortunate Howard Schultz of Starbucks, who says he's going to run as an independent, even though he's a Democrat, has been a Democrat. He's strongly against it. There are other Democrats who will, who will say it's too expensive. But, you know, uh, the devil is in quite a few details, to use a cliche. And I think you know, the question of, of how this is phased in, the role of private insurance, if any, folks who have insurance through their employer, what happens to them, are there choices, what are the choices, these are all the questions as well as how you pay for it. But um, the CPC leadership did get Nancy Pelosi to agree for the first time in since anything like this has been introduced to hold actual hearings in ways and means in in the health committee in the substance commi- substantive committees that would preside over it and that's never happened before and that's a real opportunity for again education consensus building amending you know listening to people perhaps from the center Uh, Maybe from the left who have a different idea, but it means that you're going to have, I mean, I hope to God cable news covers it, but we know we will and others will. You'll have actual hearings where people talk about what this can mean and really lots lots of money and time to flesh it out rather than it being fleshed out in Bernie Sanders office, God bless him. He's devoted a lot of t- staff when thinking to this, but all those folks are involved. But my point, I guess, is when you get the committees involved, when you have that kind of staff power, you have an institutional bulwark for this. There will d- be Democrats who do not sign on, who will fight it tooth and nail, but you, it, it just gets a lot more official. Um, and and real to people once you start having hearings and calling calling folks to explain what it means and, and I'm, I look forward to that.
2: And one of the key things to explain is the response to people like Bloomberg who say this is going to bankrupt us. It will cost trillions of dollars. The total cost of healthcare in America will probably go down under Medicare for all. The only Issue is, where's the money going to come from that right now goes through the private insurance companies? Medicare for all would bring it through the, te- the tax system rather than the uh, private profit-making insurance companies. But the total is not going to go up. The total is probably going to go down. One last thing. We've been talking here about the Progressive Caucus. You've mentioned the Democrats who will oppose Medicare for all. Of course, there is another caucus of Democrats in the House they call themselves the New Democrat Coalition, has about 100 members. In my world, these Democrats are considered, you know, tools of Wall Street in the pay of the hedge fund billionaires in the fossil fuel industry, committed to austerity. What is Pramila Jayapal's attitude towards the New Democrat Coalition?
4: Well, she's got an interesting problem opportunity, you decide. Uh, where there are about a dozen right now, and there could be more new Democrats who actually signed on to be part of the Progressive Caucus, too. Now, this really bothers some people. They think, as you just described, these people are, are conservadems, they are auster- pro-austerity people. Her her point of view is somewhat different. She believes at this point that the the Caucus is going to have to develop some kind of guidelines for membership. You can't say you yes, I I am a member of the Progressive Caucus because you think it helps you, but then come out against Medicare for All, tuition-free college, fifteen dollars minimum wage, comprehensive immigration reform, right? But on the other hand, what she argued with me, which I I guess I come down on this side too, John, is that for some of these people, some of these people really are progressives in red or purple districts who are going as far as their districts will let them. She talked about, she didn't give me a name, but somebody that she considers very progressive, who nonetheless can't come out behind the slogan or the the policy, abolish ICE, but favors very, very progressive, comprehensive immigration reform. So she she made the case that there have to be openings for people who are as far left as they can possibly be in their district, and that maybe you do have a roster of, of... CPC priorities but you get up you need to endorse four, four out of five or so I'm not I'm making that number up out of whole cloth but you want people to sign on to a certain amount a certain, a certain orientation and a certain number of legislative priorities but you don't require full uniformity. She made the case very strongly that she would rather have some of these members have access to the arguments and the resources of the Congressional Progressive Caucus rather than be shut out and only have access or you know, be be courted by and provided assistance by the New Democrat coalition or you know, other other centrist groups, third way or something, that there's an educational job to be done as well. And and I think that's that's an interesting and defensible point of view.
2: Joan Walsh, the new issue of the nation, features her story about Pramila Jayapal on the cover. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Thanks, John. Now it's time to talk about politics after Trump's defeat on the wall and the shutdown. For that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's executive editor of The American Prospect and a contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, there was a feeling of triumph uh, on the left after Trump caved. Nancy Pelosi, of course, gets a lot of credit, but there are other candidates as well. Some say it was Robert Mueller for arresting Roger Stone that morning. Trump caved about five hours after that. Some say, have told me, it was the threat of the flight attendants to strike, which was page one news the morning that Trump surrendered. Who do you think deserves the credit?
0: Well, all of the above, and I would add uh, the air traffic controllers who uh, stayed out of their Northeast regional headquarters. It didn't take a lot of them. Apparently, 13 were supposed to report for work, and six of them said, uh, The hell with this, we're going on a sick out. Now, this is hugely ironic. This is kind of a bookend because the real precipitous decline of American labor. Began in 1981 when Ronald Reagan fired uh, all of the air traffic controllers who would dare to go on strike. At the time, this was the only union that had endorsed him over uh, Jimmy Carter in the 1980 election. He fired all the air traffic controllers who belonged to a union called PATCO, and this uh, essentially uh, encouraged private sector corporate executives to fire their striking workers and it, it, it all but ended major outbreaks of strikes in the united states until just the last year and this was in a sense the air traffic controllers getting their revenge because by not reporting to work now it's illegal for them to strike uh, that that's why the patco union was busted in nineteen eighty-one but by not reporting to work they managed to shut down the guardia airport so that alone upset so many business travelers that Republican members of the Senate and the House were getting very uneasy. And uh, I'm sure there were people on, on on Trump's staff who said, okay, that's the that's straw that, bro- that broke the camel's back. I'd like to think, though, this was kind of the bookend nearly 40 years later to what happened to air traffic controllers then and air traffic controllers sticking it to another ridiculous president
2: now. Now we have a conference conference committee working on some kind of compromise on funding for border security. These senators and representatives are used to splitting the difference. They, lots of money gets spent on a lot of stupid things by conference committees. So it seems to me they're probably ready to come up with something for Trump's wall. Or or am I wrong about the conference committee now?
0: Well, I don't think any of the Democrats are going to endorse a wall. Uh, I think they're going to uh, support, and that, in fact the Democrats already do support, spending on the border for things like more immigration judges, maybe some steel barriers, who knows. You know, they may come up with uh, with something like that. Uh, I don't think some of the Republicans on the committee <coughs> are as wedded to the wall as uh, as Trump is. But I I think there's a decent chance that whatever they come up with, if it has no wall in it, Trump will say no and then just declare a national emergency. I think he may see that as the only way to hold and win back his admittedly shrinking base.
2: And you don't think he'll try to shut down the government again if he doesn't get... I
0: I think the Republicans in the Senate, having looked at the polling and seeing his polling go down and their polling go down, and the general revulsion at this, I don't think they'll go along with it. It's quite possible the votes would be there to override a Trump veto.
2: I have a question for you. For two years, the Republicans controlled both houses of Congress. During those two years, the Republicans refused to pay for even one mile of Trump's wall. They did a lot of other things he wanted, but they didn't do that. How come they stood up to him on that one?
0: Well, they probably didn't think it, uh, it made any sense, which, in fact, it, it does not. I mean, uh, the, the, I don't know if the metaphor is invoked that often, but it's very easy to see this. Even if you're hysterical about the border, it's very easy to see. This is just uh, the Maginot line, I mean, building a piece of ugly, outmoded technology that really won't stop it won't stop immigration, and, and more to the point, since, you know, Trump is concerned about drugs coming in on the border, and we know that 90 percent of the drugs coming in on the border come in through the checkpoints, it's it's uh, an irrelevant expenditure of, uh, of funds. So it's not as if left to their own devices, even congressional Republicans are even remotely hot about the wall.
2: One more thing about the border. The New York Times had a fascinating report about the actual work of the Border Patrol. Seems like a very unpopular job. Customs and Border Protection allocated $61 million to a private management consulting firm called Accenture Federal Services to recruit and hire 7,500 new Border Patrol officers over the next five years. This was one of Trump's big things, more Border Patrol agents. The company, which is supposed to hire 7,500, has hired only 33. And during the same period, thousands of Border Patrol agents have quit. Why is it so hard to get people to protect our country from all those Mexican rapists and drug dealers? Well,
0: you know, I mean, if you want to take an optimistic view of human nature, it could be that people don't want to get a job which requires separating very small children from their parents. Yeah. Uh, that's one point. Uh, point two is that uh, the economy is doing rather well, and it's not that hard to get a better job somewhere else. The, and point three, as you, uh, I think, imply with your questions, there is no emergency on the border. I mean, you know, when there's a national emergency, say Pearl Harbor, millions of people uh, flock to uh, recruitment stations. When there is no national emergency, and there isn't, uh, you shouldn't expect there's going to be a response.
2: You say the economy is doing well. The Congressional Budget Office says the shutdown cost the economy $11 billion, $3 billion lost permanently. How do they come up with that kind of number, and do you think it's correct?
0: Clearly, there was uh, work that didn't get done that needed to be done, and uh, I I think they they tallied that. There are all kinds of lost opportunities when the government isn't open to do things it should be doing and may have to do it later at greater cost. You know, to the economy as a whole, there's certainly a loss in purchasing power not only of the uh, eight hundred thousand uh, federal workers and their uh, who weren't paid and their families and the four million contract workers who didn't get paid and their families and then you're probably talking about 15, maybe 20 million people who lose purchasing power. So that is a real hit to the American economy. It would be if, if you took 15 million people, uh, 20 million people f- from any sector out of the economy and uh, curtailed their purchasing power for a month, uh, you would get a decline in, uh, in, in the economy. There's no question of that.
2: One last thing. There's a new Washington Post poll that shows that a third of Republican voters would rather vote for someone else for the Republican nomination in 2020. What do you make of that?
0: Well, I think Trump is beginning uh, to lose Republican support beyond the rather small coterie of never Trumpers, which was confined to a small wing of, of, of columnists and others within the Republican Party he's not only uh... you know the most bizarre character to occupy the white house uh... since lord knows when but but he isn't really delivering on his ridiculous promises i mean mexico's not paying for the wall he's not building the wall so even if you support the wall you're beginning to have uh... you're beginning to have some questions uh... ron brownstein did a breakdown uh... had cnn to uh... further breakdown of uh, uh Trump's white working class support and the, those who defected to voting democratic in 2018 and he found out that uh, Trump has been losing support in the Republican base with the exception of evangelicals who are the major component of the Republican party in the American South but uh, less so around the country however if you look at you know uh, that that poll that, that suggests that Trump would still win the Republican nomination, 33, you know, a third a third of the Republican Party is not enough to deny him the nomination, but it just would further add to his, I think, already severe uh, re-election problems in 2020.
2: Harold Meyerson of The American Prospect. Read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. Finally, this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation. Sunday is the Super Bowl, that festival of brain injury. This week, Dave talks about Los Angeles Rams owner Stan Krenke and why he's making it hard to root against the hated New England Patriots, whose quarterback Tom Brady is a friend of Trump's. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. New episodes every Tuesday at TheNation.com. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.